Welcome to our podcast, Forgotten Victims, The Forensic Interview. Forensic interviewing traditionally has been associated with child victims. Over the past decade, there's been an evolution in the field of forensic interviewing where it's being applied to vulnerable victims of all ages, forgotten victims, victims with disabilities, mental health disorders, and older adult populations. I'm Scott Modell, and I'm joined here by Stacy Whitney. Hey, Stace. Hey. On uh, today's episode, we're going to be talking about interview instructions. Sometimes they're called interview guidelines, and there's a lot of diversity within the field, depending on protocol, jurisdiction, uh, where you are in the country, where you are in the world. So, Stace, let's uh, talk about how interview guidelines, you know, when it comes to interviewing individuals with disabilities, let's talk about um, some specific guidelines that would be useful for our listeners. Yeah, great, Scott. So I think that one of the things that's important for us to cover here are what are interview guidelines or instructions? Because like you said, there's so much diversity in the field and there's some that are sort of generally and there's some commonality upon, for yeah, sure. Generally agreed upon yeah. things that people do within the beginning phases of a forensic interview to let someone else know what the expectations are for the conversation. So that's where we would let someone know, hey, if you don't know the answer to one of my questions, please don't guess. And um, if something doesn't make sense that I ask you or that I say, please let me know and I can ask it in a different way. Uh, the correct me instruction is important, letting people know that it's okay to tell us that we've gotten something wrong. Um, and then there's also the promise to tell the truth, which is probably the one that is the most controversial or the, the most diversity around. So maybe we'll cover that one last. Um, but to start, I think that the don't know, don't guess instruction is one that most people use, but the way that it's introduced can be kind of different depending on the person's age and their development and what makes the most sense uh, for the interviewer and their jurisdiction. So sometimes people will introduce instructions as a formal step, which is the way that we typically teach it in our trainings. So we let people know to you know sit down with the individual, maybe get to know them a little bit, start establishing some engagement and rapport, and then lay the foundation for what you expect from the conversation. And we do that through these interview guidelines or interview instructions. So like I said, it's really setting the stage and letting people know what the expectations are. And I think it can be really helpful and really comforting for anybody to know what to expect because most people don't find themselves in a conversation like a forensic interview on a regular basis. And hopefully they don't. Yeah. I mean, our, our kids do, you know, we, <laughs> yeah. we're constantly using these techniques on our children. So does this, are you going to be doing the interview instructions before or after rapport building? You, you know, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm setting you up. <laughs> totally setting me up. So I think it depends. Uh, again, the way that we typically teach it is to give the individual that you're interviewing an opportunity to do some talking first, because yeah. if not, you're really setting the stage for, I'm going to do the majority of the talking here as the interviewer by saying, hi, my name is, this is my job and these are the rules when you come in here and for some people that can be really off-putting or not set the stage where we want the person we're interviewing to really do the majority of the talking so if we do some engagement and rapport first before we get to the instructions we typically find that to be pretty helpful yeah and I think the argument is there's not a lot I'm going to need you're going to need to correct me on or I'm going to need to correct you on or understanding we're really just using rapport to you know, decrease anxiety, increase trust, and really establish a baseline. And, you know, we had, we had a podcast, we had a podcast on rapport, right? You're, we you're did, yes. Yeah. Yes. I probably could do more because it's, you know, I, it, it, with a little bit of uh, histrionics and theatrics and hyperbole, it's everything. It, I, I mean, it is. I would argue rapport is everything. So, 
okay, so we've done rapport. We have a pretty good baseline. We've done a lot of pre-interview stuff. We have a good sense. Now it's time to sit down and lay out these interview instructions, recognizing there's going to be some variability based on the age, skill level, um, impact of their disability on their ability to communicate, recall information, and so forth. Generally, let's talk about interview instructions. So there's a couple different ways to introduce them. It is important to be clear and predictable in your transition. So going from some engagement and rapport to letting someone know that you're going to be doing something a little bit different. So saying something like, hey, there's some things about this room that I want to make sure that you know. We don't necessarily have to call them rules, instructions, or guidelines. Those words can be off-putting or sometimes confusing. We don't want people to feel like they're in some sort of trouble either, I think, and that it's going to be a strict process because we do still want it to be a free-flowing conversation where they feel comfortable. So saying something like, hey, there's some things I want you to know about talking with me or some things I make sure I let everybody know when they talk with me because that's much more normalizing so they know that they're not being called out and that's something that you're going to cover with anybody that's sitting in front of you. So that transition is going to be really important instead of just going straight into giving the sort of rules or guidelines. For sure. So after we do that, then we would let them know that the first one is, like I mentioned, if you don't know the answer to one of my questions, it's important that you not guess. If you don't know the answer, you can just tell me, I don't know. So that's pretty plainly how we, how we typically say it. For people that are more concrete and literal in their thinking, we also would encourage that we practice each of these rules with, with the person. And it's a little bit of a delicate balance because we don't ever want to put ourselves in that situation where we're asking someone a hypothetical question because hypotheticals can be difficult, but that's kind of what we're doing here. So we do it in a way where we say something. Do it something, in a concrete way. Exactly. Where we say something like, let's practice. And then you can ask a question that you would expect that they wouldn't know the answer to. Like, what did I have for breakfast this morning? The hope would be that they would say, I don't know. And Cereal. Then, and then we would respond, oh, please don't guess, <laughs> which is our, which is another one of our uh, instructions that we want to make sure we cover it in that way. So if you don't know, don't guess. Um, sometimes people may respond that way, though, just like you did, Scott. So if that happens, then just reminding them that it's okay to not know the answer. That's right. Because for some people, they're going to feel inclined to answer our questions, even if they don't know, because maybe they want to make sure that they're pleasing us or they feel like they should know the answer to something. Yeah, I, I remember conducting an interview with a, a young child with autism. He wasn't that young. He was nine. And I said, during this phase, I said, you know, what's my, let's practice. What's my dog's name? And he goes, Charlie. And I said, how do you know my dog's name is Charlie? He said, I don't know. I just like Charlie. Well, do you know my dog's name? No. So we can overcome it even if they guess, which I think yeah. is important. Did you have a dog named Charlie? Just no. Okay. I, <laughs> just I like Charlie. No, my dog's name was Seminole. Okay, not not Charlie though. Not so. Charlie. So if the dog's name but was Charlie, it, yeah, it would have been a little strange. I would have said, "How do you know? Who are you working for?" Interviews <laughs> over. No, I, who have you been talking to? <laughs> wouldn't have done that. No, I'm sure. I'm sure. So I love that he loves that the like. I love human names for dogs, like Doug. Right, that's a great name. Great name for great a dog. name for a dog. Sure. Paul. So don't know. All right, I'll stop. Guess. Go ahead. Steve. So I guess if you have a really cool dog name, <laughs> write in um, on our Instagram, and we'll we'll talk about it, and we'll do yeah, a whole we'll episode on we'll, on dog names. We'll sneak it in in, in an episode. <laughs> a future episode. All right, I'll stop being distracted. So, squirrel. Good. Dogs do like squirrels. So if you don't know the answer, don't guess. Um, so for, like I said, concrete and literal thinkers, we would want to practice it. Now, it can be infantilizing to practice the rules, though, for someone who might not require it. So these are the kinds of things that we need to know about, hopefully, ahead of time in some of our pre-interview considerations or another great reason to spend some time 
doing engagement and rapport with someone so that you have more baseline information about them and can make that decision. Yeah, it becomes a judgment call during the interview whether or not you need to practice. But having those practice options sort of in your back pocket or in your tool belt is going to be important because you don't always want to come up with one on the fly because sometimes they don't turn out so well and you end up Ooh. asking some really obscure questions. So things like, what did I have for breakfast this morning? Or what's my dog's name are good ones. Um, so thinking of ones that, that you might be comfortable with, with asking and trying to, instead of trying to come up with it um, in the moment. So that's the don't know, don't guess. And this all sounds really long, but once you're actually in the flow of the interview, goes, yeah, it goes quickly. doesn't take that long. Without um, me interrupting. Right, exactly. And then we can really get a good handle on it. So we know that if we tell someone not to guess at an answer, that later in the interview, hopefully, if we ask a question they don't know the answer to, they would feel more empowered to say, I don't know. And then we let them know, hey, thanks for letting me know you don't know. We talked about that. And then you can even give the other side. Um, if you know the answer, I want you to tell me. But if you don't know the answer, that's okay. Right. You also can refer back to this rule or, or things we, we talked about in the beginning if you get a sense that they're guessing. Exactly. Exactly. So letting them know that it's okay not to know the answer. Um, because sometimes, like I said, people feel inclined to answer even if they don't know. So that's the first one. That one's pretty widely accepted. People are usually okay with that. Um, the other one is if you don't uh, understand my question or if something doesn't make sense, let me know. This one's a little bit harder, uh, especially when it comes to the practice, but just letting people know if you don't understand my question, let me know and I can ask it in a different way. So the, the important components of this are making you the problem as the interviewer. So I might ask something that's confusing. doesn't mean they don't understand. It means I've I've done something wrong here and I need to do my job better. Oh, I've asked a ton of confusing questions. It's almost, almost every day, but yeah, in interviews you ask it and you're like, yeah, that didn't come out right. Mm -mm. It happens. It, it totally happens because, as we know, there's no such thing as a perfect interview. So letting people know that they might expect that and that we can do something about it. And then, again, the practice can be confusing because we don't want to do a hypothetical. We don't want to say, if I said, what would you say? So we would say, let's practice and then ask a confusing question on purpose. This is the only time when we would want to do that. We don't usually want to ask confusing questions, but we might use a word that people don't always know. So a couple of the common ones are, what's my ocular hue? What's my ocular hue? Or what's my ocular pigmentation? I've heard, um, where's the patella? That's another one in hopes that the person would respond with, I don't know what that means. And then we can let them know, oh, ocular hue means eye color or patella means your knee. And then let them know that we can rephrase something right. if we ask something and it's confusing. okay. It's okay to let me know if you don't understand something I said because it was confusing. And sometimes people actually confuse these two instructions. When I say people, I mean interviewers, where they'll say, you know, if you don't know, don't guess. You know, I'll ask it a different way. So it is important that we're really careful to have don't know, don't guess, and uh, don't understand or ask a confusing question to make them two separate instructions because yep. they are different concepts but sometimes in an effort i think to speed through or we get confused sometimes that they get combined together so making sure they're two different and distinct steps uh, the next one that we talked about is correct me again the importance of empowering the person that they are the expert in their experiences and we're there to listen to them so if we get something wrong that it's okay for them to let us know um, and I was actually listening I think we were in a peer review and um, or might have been a training and someone and I think this could be a regional consideration if it, you think it would work for your region someone said it's not disrespectful to correct me and I thought that that was a really interesting 
way to introduce this rule because it, in some areas it could be considered disrespectful to correct an adult, especially if you're working with children or if you're working with someone who has been taught to be obedient and passive their whole life, then that might be something to think about. So there's different ways to introduce it. You could just say, though, if I say something wrong um, or if I repeat something back in a different way than you told me, it's okay to correct me and let me know that I got that wrong. So can be just simple and straightforward like that, but there can be some regional adaptations to it as well. What do you think about that? It's not disrespectful. I, I like that. I, I think it's another way of saying it's okay. Mm-hmm. You know, it's okay to do this. I'm giving you permission to do this, um, and it's not disrespectful. I, I think that in in some areas, some cultures, uh, that could be very important. And um, I don't, I haven't seen anything in practice or any evidence to say that's problematic mm-hmm. to do that. I like that. So, how would you practice that? So, there's a couple different ways that you could practice it. Um, <laughs> For some folks, again, you don't have to practice with everybody because it may not be necessary, but you can usually take information that you've gathered from the person so far. So you could either, on purpose, you would misspeak again the only time that you would do this, either you know their name, their age, if they told you their dog's name or something else, pick something um, sort of simple and say it incorrectly and then in hopes that they would correct you and you can uh, reassure them, say, oh, thank you for correcting me. If I get anything else wrong, please let me know just like you did. So. Yeah, and have a few of these up your sleeve because I, uh, not that long ago, I was doing one of these and uh, I asked, they didn't know how old they were actually. Mm. So uh, that became problematic yeah. when correcting me because they didn't know how old they were and they didn't know when their birthday was. They knew approximately how old they were. So if they were they were 27 and they somebody said 26 or 28 that was close enough <laughs> close enough i feel like the older i get the more that happens to me too it's like yeah. i don't always know now how that old you're I am. 22 I think about it. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. no, so. yeah okay thanks, we'll get on that one so now we're going to get controversial yeah the tough one the promise to tell the truth yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Is, i i don't know i heard there's evidence on this in, there is evidence in children, on this yeah. in children yeah so i think that that's where a lot of the controversy comes from so in some areas of the country um there is an expectation in this country in this country in the united states um there there actually is some statue around how this is supposed to go again for children like an oath correct so in some states um there's only a couple of them you would need to have the child distinguish that they understand the difference between telling the truth and telling a lie. So they have to define those two concepts, which are abstract, and then give you some information about what happened. So the consequences of telling a lie, another abstract hypothetical concept. Yeah, well, it's kind of amazing to me because you learn about this and then in practice, I've yet to interview somebody and I've interviewed people with lots of varying intellectual abilities to not know the consequences of lying in terms of you get in trouble, the cops mm-hmm. come, you know, everything about that. I, 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 you may have, you've done a few more interviews than I have, but I've never come across, and I'm usually doing people that are, are, are older, I've done children as well, but I've never come across somebody who didn't understand the concept of what happens when you lie. And, and most people do. They'll say, oh, you get in trouble or someone gets mad. You're not supposed to. Right, yeah, those are kind of the things I, that I have typically typically heard. So it's, in some jurisdictions, that's required. Very few, though. 
And so what we come across in training and, you know, when we're traveling and doing certainly virtual trainings as well, is people will say, oh, you know, we have to do that. And I'll be like, well, what state do you live in? Because not all states require it, but some people, you know, prefer in their jurisdictions that it happens. And so my response always is, well, preference is different from statute. Those are things that we need to talk about. Yeah, preference comes into way because if that's what's going to in- increase the likelihood my DA is going to take this case or... Doesn't, disc- doesn't discount it for sure, but there is a difference. So I want to know what they mean by I, I have to, and then understanding whether or not a conversation has taken place because what the research is based on is the promise and, you know, having someone say, yes, I promise I'll tell you the truth while we're or talking today. <laughs> or yeah, sometimes people will fist bump or pinkies wear, whatever, whatever a promise looks like to them, meaning them, the interviewee, not the interviewer. Um, so if the person we're interviewing says, I promise, and uh, we would, in one of our training videos, the person actually like raises their right hand when they say, I promise. So sometimes there are some, uh, or there's some sort of, you know, physical motion associated with making a promise. So that's what the research is based on. And again, it's based in children. So we don't have this kind of of research in adults yet um, and there there are some you know overlap some considerations that we can make when it comes to thinking about whether or not a promise is appropriate but a lot of folks um, when we look at the older adult population will say oh that would be you know infantilizing to ask someone in the older adult population to promise to tell the truth and so there's there's a, some controversy around it but again the research currently um, that we have says that in children that it it can increase the likelihood that they'll be truthful during that conversation with you. So that's, that's uh, what we go with. That's what we go with. We go with the research. And in practice, it seems to work pretty well. It does. And the other piece of this that I like that is often associated is the reciprocal promise. So I think it's just as important for us as we as interviewers say to someone, and I promise I'll tell you the truth today too. And sometimes we have folks in training who are uncomfortable with that. They're like, well, what if they ask a question that we don't know the answer to? Well, then the truth is, I don't know, or I'm not sure yet, or let's figure that out together. We never want to lie or make promises that we can't keep anyway. Yeah, I think people get squirrely about, well, what if they ask me, are people going to get in trouble? Um, And well, I don't ever think you should say no or yes, because that's really not up to you. If you're even if you're law, I mean, I guess if you are the DA who's going to make the decision to charge or not, maybe that gets you in that 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 position. But it ain't up to to you, whether you're law enforcement, APS, CPS forensic interviewer or some combination, it's really not up to you actually whether somebody gets in trouble or doesn't get in trouble. So you are honest when you say, well, that's not up to me and you know, I don't know. I don't know, and or I don't know yet, yeah. or there's a whole investigation that needs to take place because most of the that's time right. the forensic interview takes place very early in an investigation. So I don't know yet. Lots of things could happen, but you can't always explore it, which is my favorite part of following up on that. So tell me more about your question if someone's going to get in trouble, um, because it can help us figure out why the person's asking you that question in the first place. Could it be that there's something else going on, some blocker barrier that we need to overcome or a concern they have that we might need to address before they can continue in the conversation? So interview instructions, I think, are important and they give us lots of avenues to explore not only baseline, but laying the groundwork and also leveling the playing field a little bit because we call them guidelines or instructions or rules, but we are also saying to them, hey, I promise I'll tell you the truth too. It's okay to correct me. You're in charge here in so many words. So I think it's important that we send that message and this is a a nice formal way to do it within that conversation with somebody and things we can call back on if they do ever correct us or say, I don't know, within the interview. Great. Anything else you want to add? 
Um, the only thing that I'll add, because this comes up sometimes too, if you're not able to do interview instructions toward the beginning of the interview, don't try to clump them in at the end. So if you get somebody who just says, walks in, sits down, say, can I tell you what happened? That's the perfect interview, right, Scott? And you say, I, yes. I, I had one. I told you about <laughs> yes, one of those. Yes. I, I joke. I go, oh, I was, a, I was the best. You couldn't mm. even peer review it. I didn't say anything. I just said, can I tell you what happened? Like, yes. Of course. Yeah. Go yeah, you don't yeah. want to go, wait, I have rules. <laughs> right. So go with the flow. <laughs> if the person wants to disclose, it's okay. But then don't try to loop at the end, and especially with the truth promise. And we've seen this a couple times, too, where someone will say, like, oh, is everything you told me today the truth? Because that's more of a check and less of a promise once it's already happened. So don't try to circle back to it. That would be my last piece of advice. If Good. if you can't get it in toward the beginning of the interview, then, you know, you can work it in. And if they do correct you, you can just say, thanks for correcting me. If that happens again, let me know. Um, but don't try to build this all in or try to stop an interview if it's not appropriate. So it's it's a good step, but we always got to go with the flow in the person in front of us at the end of the day. Separates the, uh, the skilled from the new to the super skilled uh, interviewers. And, you know, the more training you have, the more practice you have, the better the better you get at it. Well, Hopefully this was useful for folks. Stace, Stace, thank you so much. No problem. Thanks, Scott. Thanks for listening. For more information about the work being done by Modell Consulting Group, visit our website, modellconsultinggroup.com, or follow us on social media.